Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Mausnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. We talk an awful lot about Section 230 uh, here on the Tech Dirt Podcast for a few different reasons. First, because it's really so important to free speech on an open internet. And then second, because it's so widely misunderstood. Uh, and that is across the political spectrum, which is somewhat frustrating that basically everybody seems to hate Section 230 and misunderstand it for all sorts of weird uh, and problematic reasons. Both major parties in Congress have talked about reforming or completely repealing Section 230, though in their confusion, they uh, seem to think that opposite things will happen if they do so, where Republicans falsely think that it will suddenly magically lead more companies to leave up speech that they want kept up, and Democrats falsely believe that it will lead companies to be more aggressive and taking down constitutional constitutionally protected speech, neither is actually a likely outcome if you actually understand how all of this works. Uh, last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Privacy Technology and the Law, chaired by the very long-term Section 230 hater, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, who used to attack Section 230 when he was still just Connecticut's Attorney General long before he became a senator, uh, along with ranking member uh, senator, a ranking senator, I forget how it works, but anyways, the the, the Republican senator who leads the, the committee, Josh Hawley, uh, who has decided that some of his sort of faux populist appeal depends very much on him attacking internet companies. Uh, the two of them together held their first uh, hearing on Section 230. And since both of them absolutely hate Section 230, they naturally mostly picked witnesses who were predisposed to agree with them that Section 230 was terrible and something needed to be done. There were five witnesses, four of whom have argued for a long time uh, against Section 230's protections, including two of the witnesses who have argued against Section 230 in court. There was just a single witness, Andrew Sullivan, who was the president and CEO of the Internet Society, who was left to defend Section 230, along with defending the open Internet and its users. And he honestly didn't get very much time to speak. Uh, today on the podcast, we have Ari Cohn, uh, who is free speech counsel at Tech Freedom, uh, who has watched this hearing, other hearings on Section 230, and has been closely watching all of the various attacks on 230 over the past few years. And he's here today to talk about that hearing, other hearings, attacks on 230 in general, and all of this kind of uh, nonsense. So Ari, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here with you, Mike. So uh, let, let's start with uh, the hearing last week. What, what, what happened? What was that? Uh, a giant bitch fest, really. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of want to start out by just noting I think what is maybe the most appalling part about these kinds of hearings, and it's not the slanted uh, witness list or anything like that. There were, there were two hearings last week. The first one was on the antitrust side of things, which, of right. course, veered into content moderation because nobody can stop talking about content moderation. But the, they're just a, a complete and total legislative farce. And, and when I say that, it's not just because of the slanted witnesses. It is because when the senators and the, uh, they go to ask questions of the witnesses, the only thing that they do with few exceptions, notably Senator Padilla, who does otherwise, they ask questions of the witnesses. They agree with them in a way to elicit a response that they already know is coming about how much the witness agrees with what they are trying to do. <laughs> they are not trying to figure out how to carefully legislate. They are not trying right. to figure out how to do this properly. What they're doing is seeking approval for what they're doing. And that's just, it's a damn shame uh, because these hearings would be a great way to probe whether 
what the approach they're they're seeking is right or what the pitfalls might be but instead it's a dog and pony show and it makes no sense it does it leads to the terrible bills that we constantly see because nobody wants to do the hard work yeah and and yeah i mean that definitely became clear and then because of that um you know, like almost all the headlines that came out of the the hearing was like bipartisan support for problems with two thirty. <laughs> oh, and every single senator was like, "There is bipartisan support." But what they don't tell you is their bipartisan support is support for diametrically opposing aims in <laughs> in many or most cases, uh, and that's kind of been the theme of Section two thirty reform uh, proposals: is one side wants to do one thing, the other side wants to do the other, and then they <laughs> declare bipartisan in consensus on the problem. Great. They're quote unquote doing something and they can show off to their constituents and get money and votes and what have you. But none of them are actually interested in solving anything. So was there, was there, uh, you know, I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right about sort of how the hearing went and how, how it got set up. And that's part of the reason why, you know, Andrew Sullivan got, got so few uh, questions. Yeah, like two questions. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically like, you know, he was sort of left alone and then they, they went to like a second round of, of questions and that gave like, you know, uh, Senator Blumenthal like a chance to sort of like try and slap Sullivan around, uh, which didn't, I think, work very well. Um, no, but but, you know, but, you know, of the things that you saw that the senators were asking, like, was, was there anything that took you by surprise in terms of like the questions they were asking the, the, the friendly witnesses to them? Very little takes me by surprise with these things these <laughs> these days. Like that, it's just it's all so fucking predictable. Um, but there are there are definitely some things that that stuck out. Um, and I, I have to say this gravitation towards the Marianne Frank's position of distinguishing information from speech, which yeah. should in itself sound ridiculous to everyone. Uh, <laughs> but people are like glomming onto it for some reason. Like it's an actual, like real thing. And she wants to kind of uh, go and, and do the, and have the courts do the test, the speech conduct distinction, which is a giant mess of jurisprudence let me tell you none of it makes any sense uh, so it's not really surprising that the courts don't want to figure it out um but you know sorry go ahead yeah i mean i was gonna say just just for people who are listening who are not as deep in the weeds basically marianne franks who's a, a professor uh at, at uh somewhere in florida i'm forgetting which university miami she's miami um and so, and she's long had problems with Section 230, um, though she once yelled at me when I suggested that she wanted to, to change or get rid of Section 230 and insisted that wasn't true and then has proceeded <laughs> to do exactly that. But, but no, nonetheless, um, she has this proposal, among other things, of changing uh, information in Section 230 to speech. And suggesting that that will make a major difference, and to me at least, it's unclear what kind of difference it will make, other than like setting up, as you were describing, like a bunch of litigation in which people try and, you know, force the courts to reconsider all of the Section two hundred and thirty jurisprudence that is and, and case law that has existed to, to see if that actually does mean anything different. Uh, yeah, and and kind of one of the easy ways to uh, illustrate it is that she says that Section 230 has basically short-circuited the question of whether something is speech, in particular uh, recommendations made by algorithms and what have you. But in what universe is saying, you might like this, I recommend this video or whatever to you, not speech. That it like inherently right. conveys a message. So it, it's not even like rational that she would be wondering whether these things are conduct or speech. They are definitely speech. They are obviously speech. Uh, it's just, it's baffling to me that these questions are being raised over things that are, are just, they're obviously speech. You can argue whether or not they should be immunized by 230 or whatever, but like changing right. information to, from speech doesn't make any sense. And it's the same nonsense that leads her to say, oh, well, Section 230 was also only intended to protect against defamation and, and defamation-like claims. Um, 
which first of all, it doesn't say that. But second of all, right. if that was the case, why does Section 230 have a list of exemptions for things like intellectual property and, right. you know, all that kind of stuff that are clearly not defamation or defamation like claims that would not need to be said. There is just no way you can read the text of Section 230 and think to yourself, oh, yeah, obviously this only applies to defamation. Right, right. And th this is a big focus that some people are, are, have been trying to to. To, to make and, and there are a couple points there that I think are worth exploring a little bit more deeply and and one is this this idea of recommendations and this this was the issue that came up recently in the the Supreme Court case the Gonzalez case which we had a podcast on that a few weeks ago um, and you know people listening to this probably know a lot of the details but but part of that was effectively this this question of whether or not recommendations are somehow exempted from sort of algorithmic whether algorithms and or recommendations, depending on how you read the question, uh, whether or not those are outside of Section 230. And, you know, there are a bunch of different questions there. But the, the underlying fact, which you got to, but I think is worth calling out because people who don't spend a lot of time with this don't always get it, is that like a recommendation is inherently speech and it is inherently protected speech, Right. And and that that's that's the underlying issue in all of this is you know and we've we've tried to make this point a bunch of times with, with section two thirty where you know part of what it is saying is effectively who imbued the speech in question or the content in question or the information in question because they're all the same thing uh, with the you know illegality or or whatever whatever. Uh, violation is there. And that's where you put the liability. Who imbued it with the illegality? Simply recommending something does not do that. It does not imbue it with whatever the illegality is. If the underlying speech itself is, is violating the law in some way or another, put the blame, put the liability, put all of that on the party who made the speech, because that's, that's where the violation occurs. And that's such an important point because you'll hear the argument back at you all the time that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, oh, well, if the recommendation is itself the platform speech, then obviously it shouldn't be protected because that's not the user-generated content. Right. Uh, but you have to look at where the harm flows from. Uh, you know, obviously, if YouTube is recommending to me, you know, cute cat videos or whatever, um, I'm not going to sue. Like, I, frankly, I can't really see how one would be harmed by that. But obviously, these lawsuits are coming because the content that was recommended is the thing that did the harm, not the recommendation itself, but the right. un, you know that underlying content. And if I recommend somebody a uh, to read the Anarchist Cookbook and they try to make one of those you know fake bombs or whatever and they blow themselves <laughs> up or whatever. I'm not liable for recommending that he read this stupid book. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just, um, it, it's nonsense. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, you know, it's. Yeah. Um, and so it, there definitely was, you know, at the hearing, I mean, and, and Marianne Franks was, was one of the uh, witnesses on the panel and she did raise that, that this issue of like, you know, replacing information with speech. And, and part of that is, you know, just to be clear, she's just sort of trying to frame, to change the law in a way that then the wording matches the interpretation of the law that she insists is already there, that is only supposed to be about sort of defamation. And she thinks that, that changing information to speech will somehow clarify that the entire point of it is only to sort of cover defamation and not various other torts or, or other issues. Um, and I will give her I'm going to give her the tiniest bit of credit here because she did something that most other Section 230 reform proponents don't do. And that is that she acknowledged that there must be an underlying cause of action. And right. you don't hear that a lot. So I, I do have to give her some limited credit for actually being at least that intellectually honest. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, this is this is not, you know, liability for like negligence or or, you know, creating a defective speech product. This isn't a new topic. We've been litigating this since the 1920s, back when it was, you know, oh, I got bad information from a stock ticker and it was negligent, so I lost a bunch of money. Or I bought this book identifying uh, mushrooms that you can eat in the wild <laughs> right. and there was something wrong in it. And 
now I got sick and I'm going to sue the publisher. Uh, and the courts have repeatedly held that there is no duty of care from publishers to make sure that every single thing that they give to somebody who buys one of their, uh, you know, expressive products, uh, completely accurate and, you know, completely non-harmful in any way, shape or form, because then no publisher would ever publish anything. Um, right. So at least she acknowledged that, but I, I don't really see I, what she's getting at. Really, is that she wants people to be able to bring the claims in court to fail, and thus cost the platforms a lot of money, uh, and thus incentivize them to do whatever she wants to do to protect people from harm. Um, I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, and and this is this is also really important, and 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 I want to zoom in on a little bit of this here too, because this is also where I think a lot of people get confused by the the nature of Section two thirty and and sort of the value of how it works. And the key thing that it does is is really this sort of procedural benefit, which is that it it gets cases that are going to lose anyway kicked out earlier and at much less expense. For, for various websites because it just, you know, lets them go in from, from the start before the cases get really expensive and say under 230 we're immune and boom, case gets kicked out. And in the, the few rare situations where plaintiffs have been able to get around Section 230, um, which has unfortunately happened a little bit more and more recently, almost every one of those cases after it then goes back and goes through the long, expensive process the defendants still win. And, and that sort of proves the point, which is without 230, you get the same result, result, but much more expensive and costing websites, platforms, whoever, a lot more money. Um, and in some cases, because of that, they're more likely to settle or agree to take down speech or you know something of that nature to just avoid the expense. Um, but in general, it doesn't change the underlying issue and the fact that, that the companies have the right to do that. Right. And that's an argument that the plaintiff's bar, you know, the only the plaintiff's bar could like uh, is that, you know, <laughs> these these lawsuits serve a valuable purpose in maybe causing companies to do something they wouldn't ordinarily do just to avoid the pain of av having to litigate to a victory. Um, you know, I... Didn't really love that part of torts class, um, but you know. But it, you know, even if you even if you subscribe to that on a general level, uh, and this kind of goes to Blumenthal comparing, um, you know, the social media platforms to defective airplanes or cars, which right. is absurd, uh, and it's absurd because this is speech we're talking about. It is different. Speech is not a cigarette. Speech is not an airplane with a faulty engine. Uh, that is just simply not the reality of it. And to trying to com compare those two things, um, I mean, either a you have such little brain capacity that you can't figure out why those two things are different. I suspect that's not the case, although I could be right. wrong. Uh, or B, you're doing it to kind of make the emotional argument. And right. I, I just I don't think that that's any way to write laws. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think to, to get to that point of, I mean, there were a few comparisons to cigarettes and, and to other other kinds of product liability areas. Um, and it's it's a little disappointing that we didn't have anyone be like, you know, make the point that you just made. But but this is speech. Speech is is somewhat different than those things. Um, but you know, there's there's a larger point here too as well. I mean, uh, you know, some of the witnesses and certainly the the senators who are asking questions repeatedly trot out claims of harm as if it is proven and without a doubt that you know social media is bad for you know take your pick children or. Um, you know, all, all different things where they just insist that there's this sort of this parade of horribles that that the Internet is just bad um, for kids. And and the evidence of that is not nearly as concrete or as solid as they make it out to be. And in fact, there are many, many studies um, that say the opposite. And, and even the studies where there is some evidence that, you know, some percentage of of of, you know, kids have negative images of themselves because of using social media or, or something like that. When you look at the details, it is even then extremely limited and it's extremely specific circumstances. And I think that, you know, if we were looking at this, honestly, we could look at those 
rare situations where there is some evidence of, you know, kind of bad effect and say, well, how, you know, what can be done here to encourage better, you know, a better result there. And on top of that, recognizing that if you look at any of the major platforms, the, you know, Meta, Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube, Twitter, well, maybe not Twitter so much anymore, but like, you know, most of these platforms have large efforts in place where they're testing out all different kinds of things and trying to deal with these things and trying to say, how can we, how can we lessen any kind of harm that is coming out of it? And they are doing so because of section 230, not creating liability for them experimenting in these ways and, and trying out different things. And all of that gets ignored. Oh yeah. And, and at the bottom at the end of the day, like we've done this before. We did it with comic books. We did it with rock right. and roll. We did it with movies. We did it with violent video games. Somewhere, something, everything is harming the children. Uh, you know, people get mad because, you know, Teen Vogue makes or used to make, I don't know what they do these days. Uh, it's been a while since I've picked up a Teen Vogue or some <laughs> other teen girl magazine. Probably never. Uh, but, you know, body image issues caused by that. You know, there's always, there's always something that is the new thing that is destroying the youth of america and that's not to downplay the fact that yes there are probably some harm uh, harmful effects for some kids in certain circumstances right. uh, but to treat kids like a monolith like big tech is quote unquote killing all kids across the board <laughs> is just nonsense and nobody yeah. like you pointed out nobody is really willing to draw a causal line there are people that say there are you know, inferences and their circumstantial evidence. And we suspect almost nobody. And I'm not sure if I've seen one study that has been willing to attribute causation. Um, yeah. You know, and that that's the high bar that you need if you want to get around the first amendment in any event. Yeah. And, and, and like we've already gone through this, I mean, with a number of these different things, but the most recent one, the most recent example that has gone all the way up through the Supreme Court is with the violent video games. Right. And California passed a law that basically would require labeling, you know, adult, uh, you know, for, for video games that are that are too mature, I've, you know, similar to the movie rating system, with the big difference being that the movie rating system is voluntary. And that's really, really important because once <laughs> it becomes mandatory by the government, then you have a First Amendment issue. And in that case, it went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, California cannot mandate this this rating system. And we're basically just going through that exact entire debate all over again, but on an even bigger scale because the internet impacts more people than video games does. But I think it, this is even like more critical, you know, violent video games. Yes, that is, you know, in, impacts a minor's First Amendment right to receive information. Here we're talking about the ability of kids to get online and talk, to affirmatively speak, right. To connect with people outside of their communities across the world, kids that might not have anyone else, there is so much good that it does, but also it's just so much, it's even more important than, you know, something like violent video game brouhaha, uh, because it really does, it, it's a, you know, it's a full frontal attack on kids' First Amendment rights, and we're seeing that in the States, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's like, I mean, a whole separate issue, which, I mean, we could do an entire podcast on that. We're, we're states. <laughs> and again, this is, this is, you know, uh, blue states and red states and purple states, every kind of state right now seems to be exploring different laws. Um, most of which ignore the fact that section 230 basically probably preempts almost all of the laws, but you know, that's that's just gone out the window. It's never Nobody. stopped the state legislature <laughs> from trying, <laughs> right? Um, but so you know, you have all these things, whether it is age verification, which is sort of the big po popular thing these days, or you know, Utah has a bill that is, uh, and and now some other states that have bills that are like you can't use social media at all if you're under 16. Um, there are a variety of these kinds of, you know, for the children, protect the children kinds of bills that beyond just being a moral panic really are taking away children's First Amendment rights as well. And, and that should be a big concern. Right. But if it's quote unquote for the children, uh, it becomes very, very hard to oppose. Uh, it is like being soft on crime. There's no right. political sense in opposing a tough on crime bill or a for the kids bill. You'll just get tarred and feathered uh, and, and thrown to the wind. Uh, it, it's just uh, a toxic 
framing, I think, yeah. uh, that really prevents anyone from really digging deep and trying to figure out if what we're doing is the right thing to do. Or even, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a strong argument that many of these bills themselves are likely more harmful for children than than helpful. And, and, you know, just whether it's, you know, disconnecting people from their ability to communicate, to find groups, especially, you know, uh, children who are in, in more dangerous situations or whose, you know, uh, parents don't approve of, of, of their lifestyle or focus or whatever. Um, you know, these things are, and, and, you know, and the funny thing is that even as, you know, the lines that you constantly hear from politicians, and this is especially true in the States, is this argument of like, oh, these companies are experimenting on our children and they're doing these, you know, <laughs> as if it's like evil scientists. Whereas these laws are also experiments on our children and there's yep. no concern about how they might actually impact the children. There's just the assumption, as is always the case with with various regulations, that, oh, of course, it will just act, it will do exactly what we claim it will do. <laughs> and there's no reason to to, to, to be concerned about that. Yeah, and that, that just brings me to something that actually popped up in both the uh, 230 hearing and the antitrust hearing. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that the, the quote-unquote big tech business model, let's forget the fact that, first of all, what is big tech? And second of all, like last time I checked, Microsoft doesn't really have like, I guess what they have LinkedIn, I guess, but I, I don't count that as GitHub. social media. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. It, like, so there's, there's a definitional problem in the first place, but right. they quote unquote, um, I think it was Senator Durbin. Um, oh no, it was, it was Lee that said that the big tech business model is an addiction model. And then in the two thirty hearing, um, Fareed said something kind of similar he says that search algorithms are different than recommendation algorithms because search algorithms, the interests of the, the search engine and the user are aligned because the search engine wants to provide the most relevant and useful uh, information to the user. Um, but he tries to contrast that with recommendation algorithms by saying that those, well, those are meant to make the company money because they keep you coming back for more and more content recommendation algorithms inherently are also trying to get you the most relevant <laughs> and the things you most want to see. Uh, right. You know, he tries to frame it differently by using the, the word engagement, but all those things that keep you coming back again and again, that that's seeing videos you like. That is what keeps, you know, you right. coming back. And to tie it back with Senator Lee's comment, the entire point of every media enterprise is to keep your eyeballs on whatever they are, you know, whatever media they are purveying for as long as possible. Calling that an addiction model is bananas. And there's right. all the talk about the dopamine release. Well, guess what? Studies also indicate that binge watching television releases dopamine too. Uh, you know, are, are they going to go after the Netflix uh, autoplay or whatever? I, it's just, it's so ridiculous to conflate addiction with I am seeing and reading things I like, and I would like to keep doing that. I don't know. I was, I always had a book with me as a kid in the bathroom on the table and my parents were nuts. They never said, Oh, you're addicted to reading. We better do something about that. <laughs> well, I mean, Bananas. again, like, yeah. If you talk about uh, like moral panics of years past, there was in the, in the 19th century, there was a moral panic about novels and how they were destroying kids' brains. So like, you know, we go through this over and over again. But I mean, you know, it's the same thing. And, and again, like the, the thing that I always try and do and, and, you know, certain people get mad at me when I do this is like for all of the claims about big tech, insert Fox News and and see if the same thing can apply, right? Does Fox News want to keep people watching, and and do they present more and more extreme content because it keeps people hooked to it and keeps the, the the TV channel on? And does it help them make more money by showing more ads and being able to charge more for ads? Absolutely. Now, would Senator Lee say the same thing on, on in a hearing about Fox News? Of course not, right? So I I mean like the the whole idea. That like the internet is this some crazy unique thing that is somehow more harmful or addictive than other forms of media. It just is not. There's no evidence to support that. And and, and 
you know, again, like the whole point is like they, they do that by providing people what they want. You can argue, and maybe this is a reasonable argument, that people should learn how to put stuff down, you know, at, at some point and maybe not spend as much time online. But like that's a societal thing that that like, time and time again, like society seems to figure out how to handle these things. When people get really interested in, in certain things, watching TV, there was there were panics about people, kids watching too much TV. You know, the whole concept of like couch potatoes and, and all of this stuff. Yep. People figure it out over time. We don't need like, you know, to destroy the entire business model of television to get to get people to stop watching TV all the time. And that's, you know, but and and that's exactly right. And, and you know, when our grandparents, uh, you know, were growing up uh, and, and raising our parents, um, having TV was probably, again, equally scary to them. Uh, but the thing is, that generation that grows up with it, they learn how to deal with it. They learn how right. to adapt. They learn how to process. It is only the old people who can't <laughs> fathom this new technology, who are very terrified of it, that think that this is go- leading towards some catastrophe when, in right. fact, the kids are going to be all right. They're going <laughs> to grow up with this. They're going to figure out how to deal with it. And just because we didn't grow up with it and can't understand it doesn't mean that there is some massive problem. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the problem that, um, you know, adults run the world, I guess. <laughs> yeah, let's let's yeah. start putting kids in Congress. <laughs> we might do better. Yeah, I mean, it was funny that, you know, with the with the Utah bill in particular, that there were some kids who testified who were saying like, hey, you know, no, don't do this. But, you know, adults don't listen to kids. So, um, no, they certainly don't. <laughs> uh, I guess the response to from them would be, well, social media is making our kids not listen to us. And you know what? I want to <laughs> say right. something about that, uh, because there is literally nothing that is forcing you to give your kid a smartphone if you don't yeah. want them to access, you know, certain things. And, you know, I don't really think I ever see this point being made. If you don't give your kid devices that can access those things or you restrict how they can access those things, people say, oh, well, they can just go to their friends' houses or do whatever. But is the amount of use they're going to do at their friend's house enough to cause these harms that you allege they are harming? Absolutely not. No kid is going to be up till 3 a.m. scrolling through Instagram at their (laughs) friend's house. That's not how it works. So it's just this massive dereliction of duty by people who want the government to do their parenting for them. Yeah. I mean, and I think that there is an element of that. And all of this is this sort of, you know, parents who are confused by technology rather than you know, doing the right thing and figuring out how to, how to, you know, better, better prepare their children for the world. Um, you know, you, you get this sort of result and, it, you know, and, and I've written this a few times where it's like, you know, there are different views of, of parenting certainly, and, and everybody can parent how they want. But I tend to believe that like, you know, parenting involves preparing kids to be able to deal with situations, including, you know, potentially dangerous or risky situations, learning how do you deal with that? How do you, you know, get away from danger? How do you do those things? Denying that the danger exists and hiding it from them entirely and sweeping it under the rug, to me, is not preparing them for that kind of world. Teaching them that these things exist and, and sort of how to, how to deal with it and how to respond to it seems like a, a better approach, which is completely wiped out by a bunch of these bills that, that try and like, you know, ban kids from the internet effectively. Well, you have found perhaps an unexpected ally in uh, Judge Richard <laughs> Posner. Uh, in one of the Seventh Circuit cases over the violent video games, he had a great passage about how the reason why we don't protect kids from all kinds of terrible things is because when they turn 18 or now 16 in some places, they can vote and we want them and they can do all kinds of things. And if we raise them in a bubble until then they will enter the world unprepared to deal with anything and with how much of a deal people make about how important social media is to our everyday lives now. The idea that you would want to toss an 18-year-old kid into that <laughs> with no idea how to handle it is bizarre to me. Just yeah. like, off the top of my head, even just the naivety that they would have and in, in falling for like basic scams that they would have learned at a young age yes. are scams. Like just that alone would be like monumental. Yeah, yeah. 
it's it's all kind of crazy. Um, so bringing this back to to sort of Congress and and two thirty, I know that there are a number of bills. Some of them have have you know a lot of them sort of showed up in the last congressional session, and some of them are are returning. Um, and and many of them attack Section 230. So, you know, there's bills like COSA, which is the Kids Online Safety, which is getting at a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. There's Earn It, which is, is sort of this hidden attack on encryption. Um, there is Safe Tech, which is just a very, very confused bill. <laughs> I, I could get at all the reasons why, but it's, it's you know, whatever. Um, what, what do you think, what, what do you think is going to happen in, in Congress at this point? It's hard to tell. Uh, I, I do think something like, yes, Ernest's going to be reintroduced. It's been killed how many times now? Two, three times. Like it's just yeah. the fact that they keep trying is insane to me. Um, Kids Online Safety Act will absolutely be reintroduced and it's going to have some some new language in it from what I hear from staffers. Um, but, you know, I'd expect a lot more of just these like hodgepodge of approaches being it's spaghetti at the wall, basically. Um, and, you know, just to, to harp on the safe tech for a second and, and <laughs> only because it's related to uh, something that was in the hearing. Uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar, who, by the way, basically started off by saying well, she wasn't originally gung ho about reforming 230, uh, but she got gung ho because people opposed her bills, I guess. So, like, it's a revenge yeah. mission, I suppose. It, very bizarre and, like, completely in line with her, I suppose. Uh, but she talked about how criminal activity is allowed to flourish on, on social media platforms. And the answer to that is fund more like enforcement efforts like right. section 230 just has an exception for federal criminal law like right. you have the tools you are not using them that is your fault right and this is you know i mean it's it's crazy because and this is this comes up in earn it and some of the other discussions too which are you know a lot of them a lot of the discussion is about child sexual abuse material csam uh and and how much is there now the law already is very, very clear, which is that if you are running a platform and you find that content on your platform, you need to report it. Otherwise, like you're you're in serious trouble if you don't serious legal trouble if you don't report it. What is unclear is once that stuff is reported and you report it to NICMEC, which is this not government, but quasi-government, quasi-government <laughs> yeah. quasi organization that is allowed to sort of handle the reports of, of CSAM material. Um and then it's supposed to go to law enforcement. But there's no transparency. And this is funny because of all the discussions about transparency. But there's no transparency about how many of those reports to NICMIC then lead to law enforcement uh, efforts and, and actually taking down these things. So there's this big gap. So people say, well, there's still CSAM online. There's No one is talking about evidence that any of the websites are failing to report CSAM enough. Like everybody, as far as I can tell, like almost all the reports say that the, these these organizations have have teams that work on it. Um, well, Twitter destroyed their team that worked on it, but that's a, that's again another another story. Um, but you know they're reporting it, and Nick Mick is accepting those reports and apparently passing them on to law enforcement. The question then is, what is happening? And is it that law enforcement doesn't have enough resources to go after those? Maybe, but then let's deal with that problem. That is not a Section Two Thirty problem. Right. And well, Blackburn in the hearing seemed baffled by the proposition that stripping back 230 would disincentivize, disincentivize platforms from moderating CSAM. She just doesn't seem to understand why. Right. And there's a really easy answer to that question. And that is the other half of why Section 230 was, was created and the Cubby case where the court found that there was no evidence that the well, CompuServe, I was going to say platform, but CompuServe uh, right. had any knowledge of right. the contents of uh, illegality. Well, what happens when you take back Section 230 is that platforms just say, I don't want to know. There is too right. much risk. It's going to be very hard to report this stuff to me. I'm going to make it as hard as possible so that whatever you do, you cannot prove that I had actual knowledge of anything. 
Exactly. And that gets back to, I mean, you, you brought this up briefly earlier in, in the discussion about like that, the example of like the, the, the book that was like a, you know, mushrooms that you can eat book that, that actual case. Yeah. Yes. An actual case that recommended a, a like very deadly uh, mushroom, where it's basically like if you ate just a tiny bit of this mushroom, you were like 99% likely to die. And it was recommended in this book of like mushrooms you can eat. Not a good thing. Very bad. <laughs> uh, and, and the publisher was sued. And yet what did the court find after all was that because the publisher could not be expected to know, did not have the requisite knowledge that this particular mushroom was incredibly deadly, that you could not hold them liable. And so all you've done, if if you take away 230 in those cases, especially around like CSAM stuff, is make it so that any any website with with a legal team or, or a legal, you know, outside counsel advising them will say, do whatever you can to avoid knowledge. And you know Or no more and, mushroom and, books, I guess. <laughs> no more mushroom books, yeah. But but like, you know, the the and so, so that leads to less finding of stuff, less reporting to Nick Mick and, and, you know, sort of opening up the lane for more CSAM material, which is, which is not good. And there's one other element, which I'll throw in there too, which is then like, if as, as earn it act is, is kind of structured where it sort of, you know, changes the, 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 uh, the, the setup in terms of knowledge for the different providers is that it also creates risks of the the scanning for CSAM being seen as state activity, which then changes the standard by which it is legal to to a Fourth Amendment standard, meaning that they can't that that websites cannot scan unless they like there there's uh, a warrant you know, <laughs> a warrant exactly, and so like all of these things. It's weird how little senators <laughs> seem to understand how the law actually works in these in these scenarios. And, and to me, that, that is – but they have staffers, right? And those staffers are supposed to understand this stuff. Um, yeah, they're supposed to, and we should absolutely expect and demand better. I mean, like just like another – Going back to your replace with Fox News thing, at one right. point, Holly like made a big deal about how companies are making money off of the uh, uh, the the recommendation algorithms. Like, what the fuck does that matter? Like, <laughs> right. people make money off of speech all the damn time. It's all right. around us. When you when you buy a newspaper, somebody just made money off the speech. <laughs> are you then do you are you then going to sue them for where they place the articles in the newspaper? Um, I could think of a few newspapers I would definitely love to see for that if I could, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's just, it's so like, it's such a, a silly state of affairs in terms of like the arguments people are making. And it's just, it's hard to believe that anyone actually thought this in their head and said to themselves, Oh, I should say this out loud on a, you know, <laughs> broadcasted hearing. That's a great idea. I do love the fact, though, that Schnapper fucked up his argument in Gonzalez so badly that Hawley had to give him the floor to rehabilitate himself. <laughs> that amused that amused the hell out of me. Dude is obsessed with thumbnails, and I cannot. I, I was out about why. to say the, the the thumbnail thing is is was bizarre. This is so for, for people who or don't follow this stuff as closely. Eric Schnapper was the lawyer who who uh, was the lawyer for Gonzalez who argued against Google in the Gonzalez v. Google case that we talked about the other, you know a few weeks ago and on the podcast we certainly discussed how how poorly a job he did defending Gonzalez and he was one of the witnesses at the hearing and one of the things that was weird was that you know so much of the supreme court uh uh oral arguments he kept going back to this example of thumbnails like he was arguing that because youtube showed thumbnails you know like the little oh, images of other videos of the videos like that was their speech because they were thumbnails, which is weird for all sorts of reasons. It starts to get into like copyright cases around thumbnails and all sorts of other stuff, but none of it made any sense. And 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 then he comes to the Senate hearing and he brings up thumbnails again. And I was like, didn't somebody take him aside and just say like, dude, lay off the thumbnails. It's got fuck all to do with this. But it makes no sense. 
<laughs> like, yeah, it's, but he's he's really into thumbnails, and he really seems I, to think yeah. thumbnails represent something that they absolutely do not represent. Right. It's it's like okay, like even if you were right about thumbnails, what does that tell us about literally anything? <laughs> right. Nothing. Nothing. It tells you fucking nothing. Right. Leaving aside the fact that YouTube lets you pick your own thumbnails, but anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blow his mind, Mike. (laughs) It it is true that that if you choose not to, it will choose one for you. But it's still a thumbnail from your video. It is still your speech. But anyways, that's... that's, uh, I, I mean... Yeah, all of this is is really kind of frustrating for for obvious reasons. I think anyone listening to this can hear the frustration in both my voice and Ari's voice. <laughs> uh, but we live in the dumbest timeline. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I I think it's I think it's you know I mean I do think it's important to call out because it does feel like I feel like even some of the people who I think understand some of this get caught up in sort of the the. There's just this momentum against Section 230 right now. And I feel like some people are just getting caught up where it's just like this feeling that like just in general, things are bad and the Internet is bad and everything bad is caused by the Internet and something needs to be done. And Section 230 is just like this convenient tool that clearly can be modified to to deal with it. And that worries me quite a bit. You know, yeah, it's going to fix none of their problems. Right. In fact, it will make many of the problems worse, as I think we were just just discussing. Um, and you know, the thing that I'm still trying to puzzle through is like, how do we how, how do we get that message out there so that people understand it? I I, I don't know because you know. <laughs> I remember during the hearing Blackburn saying that she wants to fix SESTA FOSTA, um, yeah. which, you know, there's one way to fix it and it would be to repeal it. Um, right. But, you know, Th- thankfully, a court, Christ, might, a, a court might do that for her, by the way. Right. I yeah. mean, there was just the hearing on SESTA FOSTA that, that where the, the, the appeals court sounded pretty sympathetic to the idea that the SESTA FOSTA is unconstitutional. But that's that's another issue. And I guess I'll give her one more bit of credit. Marianne Franks basically said you didn't consult with marginalized communities who are going to be affected before writing to FOSTA. And Blumenthal yeah. just flat out said, oh, we tried to listen. Bullshit. Bullshit, especially coming from Senator Blumenthal, who has been the most resistant to yes. any kind of criticism or suggestion for his bills. If he came up with it and it's, his name is on it, it is perfect and he will hear nothing else. Uh, and he is one of the most recalcitrant uh, in terms of actually trying to figure it out. So when it comes to like elected officials, you know, I, I don't know how much hope there is. You know, Senator Padilla has been, uh, you know, very open. If you watch all these hearings, he, he raises pointed questions based on the things that he'll wave the letter in the air and say, I have this, you know, here's what it says. How do you respond to this? Right. Um, which is great. That's exactly what the hearings should be for. But like most of the senators, Klobuchar is the same way. She's no no designs on um, confirming that there could be anything wrong with the, with ACOA. Like it's just, and part of it is, you know, ego probably, but part of it is, well, they just want their big tech win. They just, they right. want it. They don't care what it does. So, you know, for elected officials, I'm not sure anything changes unless constituents say, Hey, this is not what we want. Um, right. And they hear that with enough voices to actually feel some kind of pressure. Frankly, though, you know, constituent uh, involvement is not particularly high ever. Um, you know, it's people have got a lot of shit going on. It's hard to find the time to write in, oh, I care about Section 230 enough. I'm going to actually sit down and, and write to my legislator. I wish it were more. It should be more. People should do it. Um, right. But, you know, people have busy lives. So, you know, I don't really know how we solve this problem other than just hope that the loggerheads continue, uh, you know, until something reasonable comes up, something that might actually do something. If Congress wants to spend money, you know, creating some kind of resource for parents to figure out how to use parental controls, I am all fucking for it. Go for it. (laughs) Knock yourselves out. Authorize studies if you want. I don't, you know, do something useful that's going to do something. Right now they're just sitting there declaring bipartisan consensus and then just introducing stupid shit that doesn't go anywhere because it's dumb. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I, I think I think that's true. I think you know, I, to some extent, it's just a battle that 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 has to be fought. And uh, you know, I feel like we should go back and look at like how did various other moral panics end? You know, and and over time, like you know, they all look ridiculous in in retrospect. You know, whether it's yep. you know violent video games, which there's still some moral panic around that, but. You know, pinball, Dungeons and Dragons, rock and roll I music. About pinball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't can't forget about pinball. Uh, yeah. you know. Well, you know, the comic book industry was nearly destroyed by their moral yeah. panic. Like, it's, yeah, uh, there's there's moral panics seem silly in hindsight, but they present real risks at the time. Um, and to the extent we can avoid that, uh, and you know, that and the, I think a critical difference perhaps in past moral panics is yeah. Okay. So comic books were like a thing and it was, you know, about one medium here. Right. The implications are to the internet generally with all yes. the advancement that we still have left to do. It's so much more important to not screw it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> now I'm just sad. <laughs> Well, what a perfect note to end on then. <laughs> <laughs> and tired. I'm tired. Yes, yes. Well, this is, I mean, this this is our, our life these days is is dealing with these kinds of things and, and trying to explain over and over again. It's more fun than it sounds, people. <laughs> Sometimes. It would be nice to get a break every once in a while. <laughs> True that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I expect that we're going to see a lot more. There are going to be more battles um, this year. We'll see more. Next year, we'll see more. These aren't going away. And hopefully, the only hope is that, you know, as you said, that that it, the, the different sides disagree so much that, that nothing actually comes of it. Um, you know, I mean, it is – I keep saying, and I, I remain true to this, like, there, is, there are possible proposals that could make sense. And I would love to see one, but I haven't seen one yet. And and all the proposals so far have been bad and they're just based on misunderstanding all of this. And that's really, really frustrating. And therefore the hearings like, like the ones last week were, were very frustrating and I'm sure we'll see more of that. Um, oh yes. But you know, the, and there'll be more to talk about and more to yell about and more to stress about. So. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> on I that note all those things <laughs> that's right that's right on that note uh ari thanks so much for taking the time and talking about it uh, i know your schedule is super busy uh and so it's great that, that we were able to find the time to do this and thanks to everyone who is listening as well uh for making the time to listen to us and hopefully we didn't stress you out too much but if we did <laughs> Contact your senators and tell them to stop fucking up. So <laughs> that's that's the uh, the basis of it. But uh, all right. Well, thanks again to everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.